1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: How's it, everyone? How are you doing? Hope everyone is keeping well out there. And I hope you look forward to this next chat and this next guest that I have on the Squash Mind podcast series. So, I welcome one of my favorite people. I know that's quite a big statement, but he's someone who I've followed for quite a while, and it's Stu Armstrong. I first came across Stu on the Talent Equation podcast and have been following him very closely ever since. I remember hearing one of his early episodes. And he just spoke my language. He just, the things he was saying, the way he was looking at sports, the way he was looking at coaching, the way he was looking at developing the whole athlete just spoke massive volumes to me. I've recommended many of his podcasts to many people I work with because he just is able to ask the right questions, get to the the nitty-gritty about some of the key fundamentals in regard to sport and learning and talent development, talent identification, and to really enhance the athlete's experience in sport. He is one of the busiest men I know, so to be able to reach out to him and the sign of the, the, the man he is and the gentleman he is gave up a big chunk of his already precious time to come onto the show, to have a long extended chat with me that hopefully I think you'll find really interesting and be able to take a lot of lessons out of it, whether you're a player, whether you're a coach, professional, junior, amateur. I think he just really is such a curious person, someone who is always looking to make better ways and better environments for the athletes He's very big on the constraints-led approach, which I love and I try to coach a lot. Letting athletes learn and discover their own way, letting them be creative, letting them be expressive. We talk about repetition without repetition. We go into mental toughness and resilience and how this is created through the environment that the players are in. And it was just an absolute delight to be able to get into this amount of detail with someone who I... Massively respect, follow a lot. Whose guests on his show are of the highest caliber of coaches and athletes and great thinkers in sport. It's um, it's it's pretty hard to describe what Stu does. He's such a, a wide-ranging, you know, talented, motivated, driven individual that has many many strings to his bow. But in simple terms, he's right at the cutting edge with Sport England in regard to coach development, really doing some high-level work in the strategies, the philosophies, the direction that coaching should be going, the way to get athletes performing at their best. And he feels like one of these guys that's been contributing, whether be it directly or indirectly, to the success of sport in the UK over the last 10 or 15 years. You know, the, the stuff he says, the stuff he comes up with, the stuff... That makes me think personally, the stuff that stimulates the mind of coaches is, is just right up there. And he's very open, very honest with, with how he speaks. And like I said, I just I, I'm so honored to be able to be able to have this chat with him and, and go through these details. And you know, hopefully I'm not gonna pester him too much, but I'm definitely gonna want him back at some point in the future because there was a whole bunch of avenues that we weren't even able to get to. This is one of the longest podcasts that I've done so far, but it felt one of the the quickest and easiest to do, and it actually opened up more lines of inquiry and hopefully ones that are curious and interesting to everyone out there. So I hope you enjoy this chat. Like I said, I really enjoyed having it myself like I do many of the others, but in particular, this one was quite close to my heart, and I welcome Stu Armstrong. Stu Armstrong, welcome to the Squash Mind podcast series. Um, how are you keeping?
3: Uh, I'm good, thanks, Jesse, and it's uh, it's really good to be here. This is um, it's a long time since I've talked squash, so uh, I'm uh, I'm looking forward
0: to it. Yeah, we're just discussing before we started recording, and um, we got a mutual friend in Paul Ballin, and I think when he took over the Scottish job, Scottish squash job up there, and doing really good things. You said you had a great chat with him, so yeah, that that's where where I got involved with you a little bit more and started to follow you. In, and, we've had a few brief chats on Twitter. So, um, but I think a good starting point, uh, for those who are not aware of you or your work, you know, to be fair, everyone I coach or have contact with, I do recommend your podcast, but for those who don't out of this listening environment, would you mind giving us a bit of a rundown of say your sporting background, um, your journey to this point in your career?
3: Yeah. Um, and I'll try and be brief because obviously these things can go on a bit long. Um, uh, by the way, appreciate the recommendations. It's always good to uh, to increase the uh, the listenership, so to speak um yeah my background is um I've um I worked as I've been working as a sports development professional ever since I graduated university um I like a lot of people did a sports science degree and then thought what am I going to do with my life could I go into education teaching I actually start I actually started a postgrad and got about halfway through and then and then decided to jump into the world of work and started in a sports development role and haven't really looked back since and I've been fortunate enough to have a range of different roles in in different sports with different governing bodies nearly always working in either participation or uh, talent or coaching and uh, you know kind of connecting those three things and very often Mm -hmm. kind of sitting in between the world of participation talent development etc etc coaching wise um, I like a lot of people I guess I started coaching when I was about 19 no yeah well I started coaching earlier than that because Even when I was playing, I was coaching, you know, I sort of tended to gravitate towards like captaincy type roles. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the way it works. I was actually born with a disability, which limited me quite a bit. So as a result of that, one of my adaptations was to become super tactical. So I'm one of these kids who played like every sport in the world. Um, uh, You know, if it was on TV, I was playing it. And I just like, I play it, you know, I kind of had a bit of an ability and I would learn about the sport and I would discover how to play it. And I'd become tactically astute. So, um, you know, I, I did a lot of those sorts of things and, um, but my main sports are field hockey and cricket.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and then latterly I got more heavily involved in golf, particularly as a coach. Um, and I've been like, I, I, kind of more, I do less golf coaching than anything else. Uh, but I, you know, only because I'm just focused on the other things, but, uh, it's one of those things that I do tend to get involved with a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've got qualifications in loads, including including uh including squash, uh from way back in the day at university <laughs> when you know you do your badge collecting, right? You're yep. trying to get as many <laughs> quads as you can. I think I see a
0: squash record on your wall behind your right shoulder. I believe do. it.
3: <laughs> and it, yeah. and if, if you got close to it, you would realize that it's had very little use, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: man. <laughs>
3: um, but uh, yeah, I mean, well, fortunately, actually, you can tell it's had very little use because it's actually not broken. Because um, the, the times when I do play squash, it, there's a tendency that um, that can get broken either by my uh, lack of ability or sometimes through frustration. So uh, anyway, yeah, there you go. Nice. Um, so uh yeah so I'm one of those who did a lot of that and then I got involved in started coaching when I was about 20 when I went to university and I haven't really looked back Mm. and I like like a lot of people had aspirations you know I was going to coach internationally and this that and the other and I dabbled a little bit in that um early on but I pretty quickly realized that my genuine fascination was my passion if you like I was unfortunate enough to be able to marry my career, you know, and my passion together by working in talent development and coaching and and then being able to sort of like kind of live and breathe in that space outside of work as well. And um as a result of that, I'm, you know, I got very interested in, you know, in talent and talent development. And uh, you know, kind of I actually always wanted to support those who very often with very little resource, very little support, are you know right at the coalface of helping young, often adolescents, to you know navigate this journey of development, and mm. I've always thought they were unsung heroes, the people you never hear of, uh, but so influential and so important to some of these people's journeys. So I set the podcast up really as a means by which to help individuals like that who are often under supported, mm. um and um and there you go. That's kind of why I'm I am what I am. So you know I've got the blog, the podcast, yeah the vlog and all those sorts of things whenever I can try and keep up with them yeah
0: Um, just massive hats off to you for all of the uh the the different lenses you've got to put on the different hats you use and yeah looking at it from you know my perspective it's it's just it's it's inspiring to just absorb all this information you give and and just in regard to your podcast you can see that you touch so many bases you know you you sometimes the episodes are really focused on the talent side at the real, you know, peak end of performance. And then you go sometimes down to the grassroots levels. And the curiosity that you come across within those podcasts is brilliant. Even remember one where you're talking about I think it was equestrian training and, and how that environment of equestrian horses was. And, you know, I would never necessarily listen to a podcast in equestrian training, but I just think you took the conversation in such great ways. So, yeah, I highly recommend your your viewpoint, the way you look at the world. Um, and I think you had Ian Renshaw on quite a while back and he's big into the constraints-led approach. And um, yeah, I've been got subsequently his books and really got diving into the constraints-led approach. And I could probably say that you were, you were the, the person who, piqued my curiosity way more in that. And I think that's where some of this conversation is going to go tonight. So yeah, and it's it's just great what you do produce. So thank you for that. Um, but I want to focus on a very recent podcast, uh, the one with Dr. Mustafa Sarkar uh, talking about resilience. As soon as I saw resilience, that piqued my interest again as well. And it was just brilliant the way he talked about different definitions of resilience and mental toughness. So, I think that's a nice place to start because did, did you take anything out of that conversation in regard to maybe a different way to look at resilience and mental toughness? Um,
3: yes. Yeah. So, um, Mustafa is somebody I've been really keen to talk to for quite some time. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've been following his work probably like you have for mm. uh, a, quite, a, quite a period of time. And um, I was interested in a number of things in particular, um, we never really got in to be able to discuss it in enough length, in my opinion, but you're doing some really interesting re- uh, research about coaches
4: yes,
0: and coaching resilience. Yeah. I like just, that. Yeah. You, you, I think you asked them the question a couple of times and it took a different bit of a tangent and never really got to that point, which was yeah, you know, it's my <laughs> own fault.
3: I'm afraid it's, uh, you know, i my curiosity sometimes takes me down these, uh, different tangents and I never quite <laughs> circle back to where we got to, but I did promise I'll do a follow-up. Um, Good. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, particularly with, you know, young people, um, uh, the, you know, particularly these days as well. I mean, I, I think it was this case always, but, um, I think what we often find now you, you're starting to see what, what people sometimes refer to as the, uh, mental health epidemic. Um, and, you know, around, uh, uh, young people's ability to navigate, uh sort of the complexity the increased complexity of their lives mm. um and you know nowadays i've got to sort of well rapidly getting older children an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old and a 13-year-old and uh you know the stuff that they are exposed to the level of information that they have the engagement they have is really markedly different from you know my my when I was growing up I'm Hmm. I'm I'm pretty certain Jesse I'm significantly older than you um (laughs) (laughs) so um I uh I'm uh, so you know I, I you I think about that quite a bit and I think about um those of us who are uh you know privileged I guess to be able to um engage others and sort of curate their passion which is a, a phrase i'm gonna i'm gonna i've stolen terribly from uh someone i was talking to last night actually a guy called very, a very uh, really good volleyball coach in the states called okay. uh, casey crider at in miami and um curating someone's passion is a really interesting uh, a thought process. It. Yeah. it is isn't it yeah and um but he also mentioned about how you know, you can you curate character, you create knowledge, you create passion. He talked about how his parents curated his character. But I do think coaches play a role in curating mm. character and linked to character is is this concept of how do we respond to setback? How do we respond to difficulty? How do we respond to failure? How do we respond to, um, you know, in social interactions, emotional uh, challenges, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What what is our way of doing this? And and I, I, this has piqued my interest for at least two decades. Okay. Um, and I've been exploring I explore. I got into a, a huge rabbit hole around epigenetics for a long time mm. to discover. You know, is resilience linked to? You know, is there a genetic component to this? And I I remember distinctly um I started uh, exploring exploring and I was reading a book and it was called Design for a Life by Professor Patrick Bateson who's an epidemiologist at Cambridge University and it was heavy and I was like really struggling with it and um so you know a bit of a shortcut I suppose I wrote I wrote to him and uh, okay. asked him if he would join me for lunch and he was good enough to, to do so so we met in a pub and uh you know and I, I, we had a, a steak or something I can't remember exactly what it was um uh, probably something I shouldn't have had but anyway uh, and uh, I was I actually mine went cold because I was scribbling notes while he was talking and eating <laughs> yep. and um, it was fascinating and he told me this story about a really famous study I forget the name of it now but uh, it was done in America where they actually got rats and um, they uh, they they noticed that there was broadly speaking like two types of like mother rat there was a like the mother rat that was sort of seemed to be you know pretty assured pretty assured pretty kind of stable and then there was the sort of other rat that was more skittish and you know kind of a little bit less uh didn't seem to deal with you know kind of environmental challenge particularly well what they noticed was when those those rats had offspring um the um assured rats would uh uh, or resilient rats, if you like, would lick their offspring a lot. They would nurture them mm-hmm. a lot. Whereas the the ones that were more skittish were too kind of a little bit all over the place, so they didn't nurture their offspring. And then, lo and behold, the offspring yeah. turns out to be uh, less resilient. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the others, but then they 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 what they did was they swapped them over. Okay. So they would then take it, the offspring at birth and from the uh, assured rats over to the, the less resu- the resilient rats over to the skittish rats. Yeah. And they sort them over. And then it, with the nurturing, they'd found that the, the, the rats born to the skittish mothers would become resilient or more oh, well, assured. So
0: is, yeah, the nature nurture debates, classic, like what environment are you in? Yeah,
3: Yeah. But oh, wow. they then discovered that there is a genetic component to it, too. As well, right? Yeah. So actually, they saw, they looked at the gene pro to gene expression because mm-hmm. um, in the different um, cohorts of uh, offspring, and they discovered that there's actually a different gene expression for the two as well. So there's a genetic. Yeah, yeah. But what they also discovered was with the change of environment also brought about a change a change of gene expression. Sure. So what we used to think was, you know, perhaps that you know there's a genetic component to all these sorts of things. So it was a bit more complicated than that, as mm-hmm. it often is. So that was interesting in itself, right? So I'm gonna. it's a very long-winded way of coming back to <laughs> yeah, the conversation about Mustafa <laughs> sarcos. I've been, I've been, fa- I've been fascinated by this whole area for quite some time. And it, what it, what it brought home to me was, and then, I, then I got really fascinated by uh, Professor Carol Dweck's work mm, and Angela it. Duckworth mm, yeah. and all this sort of stuff. And 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 this idea, really, and I've always been fascinated. By, by the idea that an environment and those within the environment and the role that those within the environment and the environment can play in the development of an individual's capability at responding to whatever that environment presents to them and mm-hmm. the role we might have to play in, in providing some of those experiences in a way that's going to enable those individuals in a supportive way to navigate. Of course, yes. So of course, you know, getting a chance to speak to Mustafa and his research into that space was really fascinating. It's amazing, yeah. Um, and and so what what I took away from that really was, um, uh, you know, this I really like the kind of simplicity that he brings mm. to how we might think about that and the idea of you know you can basically turn it into a four a, you know everything can yeah. be turned into a four quadrant, can't it? Um, but the idea of the you know creating a kind of high challenge, high support environment and what that might look for. Mm. what what it might look like in terms of coaches. And he's actually started to document that in his research. And so, you know, what I tried to, I guess, pull out and share in the conversation was to try and really, tease out what we might do as coaches in order to create that high challenge, high support environment. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that was, yeah. the, I guess, the big takeaway.
0: And yeah, I reflect a lot of what you say there and, and that high challenge, high support. I just love the detail he went into. It's not necessarily, uh, it's it's both emotional support as well as support for the activity they're doing. So, and there was like a bit of a continuum there you have to play with as a coach. And yeah, and, and for me, what I, I took out of that, because i I, I love that term resilience at one point, and I, I actually did a, a master's study on it, and um, I, I referenced Mustafa plenty times in it, you know, he's written some great journals on it, and I, w- I was becoming less and less fond of that term resilience and, and he explained it so well because that was the idea where something bad has to happen in order for you to bounce back. But he then went on to the idea of this. i I don't know how he said it, but almost like proactive resilience, working yep. on stuff before the setback happens. And as soon as he explained that, a little light bulb went off in my head. I'm going, that's that's a much better definition of resilience. What do you think on that?
3: yeah, i I really like that idea, and it's mm. the first time I'd probably really come to really understand that idea, which was, Uh, Yeah, a lot of the stuff is done retrospectively, even some of the research around, for example, the Great British Medalist Project, which looked at, you know, what do super champions or, you know, super medalists, multiple medalists, what differentiates them? And often they discovered this idea that, you know, they would had some sort of traumatic experience, which combined with a positive sporting experience enabled the individual to then begin to, you know, use it as a, or for whatever reason, they were able to connect the two things and and, mm-hmm. and and some people leapt to a bit of a conclusion that traumatic experiences are kind of po- have, a, have a net positive mm-hmm. the the answer to that is maybe mm-hmm. but not certainly not for certain not for sure mm-hmm. and it certainly doesn't mean that we need to expose people to loads of trauma in, in order to try and make them medals which again I think some people may have potentially fallen foul of that idea or at least been seduced by yeah. um but he he had this idea didn't he of um, actually, if we are intentional about the design of the environment, we don't try and remove challenge. We actually design it in deliberately, but obviously suitably
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh, with the right, you know, at the sweet spot, I suppose,
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, to borrow a um, Daniel Coylism. Um, if you get the, the you know, he called, it the, he called it the Goldilocks rule, didn't he? You know, yes. it's just, just yeah. right. <laughs> so um, if if you get it just right, then you're actually going to be building um, capability skill I don't know how you describe it qualities that are going to be beneficial for the individual when perhaps something more challenging uh, comes across yes there and it, it almost it's happening for free this is the bit I didn't quite pull out in the conversation but this is the bit I reflected on subsequently which is you're kind of getting re- if you, to use the word resilience for want of a better one you're getting resilience for free Mm -hmm. right because you're doing your sports activity it's designed in such a way that it's actually creating this kind of stretch so you're getting this other aspect you know you're you're being challenged emotionally you've been challenged socially you've been challenged psychologically etc etc and you're getting it in such a way that actually from that other aspects build out of that as well as the sports activity and the sports skill and actually when you think about it it's important because if you want your if you if you want your skills, if you like, to be resilient, and by the way, you don't want robust skills. Mm. Robust things are brittle. They can they can. If you have something that's robust, it can catastrophically break. You want something that's resilient. Resilient is flexible. Yes. You know, think of a tree blowing in the wind. It's going, you know, but it's going with the wind as opposed to being uprooted. If that makes sense, and um, and I like that concept of resilience. You know, you're 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 adaptable. You're agile. You're mm. flexible, and both. Emotionally, psychologically, you know, uh, socially, as well as you know, physically, and technically and tactically agile, and those are the things where I think connect together really nicely for me.
0: Yeah, I love it. As as you're talking there, and and again, I'm I'm pretty sure you've read the book, you know, Legacy, uh, talking about the All Blacks and their their culture and their philosophy. And I love that idea of of they they believe better people make better athletes, or, or you know, and I love that concept of actually working on players away from the sporting arena character development and really bringing that out in the players and and that's actually a lot what squash mind the the whole process i'm trying to do is actually a lot of the education i'm doing is going right you're going to have obstacles in your day-to-day life you know exams stresses parents interviews for university how can you look at these obstacles as opportunities? Yes, they're going to be challenging, but every time you have one of these, you know, we can grow in a better way. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in this, this off-court or off-sporting environment development of a player and how that then lends into themselves as, as a player, you know, and performing better with resilience. But, um, and that that's where I want to start unpacking things a little bit more with you, because that's why I reached out to you because I know you're really big on, on environment design. And, and, you know, I think you talk about it, um, the coaches should be environment architects. And, and I think you use another word on the podcast cultivators. I think you use the word cultivators, uh, cultivators of an environment, but, um, we see many examples of, um, great trainers, you know, people who train really well and, but they can't perform under pressure but also maybe a vice versa effect, not to as big a degree, where you see people who don't train that well and just go through the motions, but they can tend to up their game when competition happens. What do you think on this in regard to maybe the training brain and or the competition brain? I don't know if i asked the question quite right there, but do, do you understand what I'm asking there?
3: Yeah. Hmm. Um, and we've all, we've all known them, right? We all know these people who, you know, like, uh, kind of, almost like that kind of warrior trainer, who then you know crumble in the heat of the battle right. but then on the on the flip side you've got those individuals who are lazy but seem to be able to turn it on <laughs> frustrating <That is> like... <laughs> um but but again um you know again you know where this comes from and all that sort of stuff you know it's that where uh, almost like what, what is the psychological makeup of the individual who just thrives on the heat of battle and is able to kind of really respond in a way that's sort of somehow different um I was int- interestingly enough, and this is a probably seems a little bit of a segue, but 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 it might be relevant. Um, I was actually watching a video earlier on of uh, Magnus Carlsen, the, the Norwegian uh, chess grandmaster.
0: Yes, that, yeah, okay,
3: yeah, and um, he—I mean—he's all over the internet. He's, he's got all sorts of things going on, and um, uh, but he he talked really kind of—I don't know whether he meant it, but there's a particular kind of method in chess around, you know, one of the sort of like the golden rules of. Uh, and, and he, he talked about how he, he never, it never made sense when He never really learned it. Okay. He, didn't, he, he couldn't get on with it. And, um, uh, and then he was sort of, t- he was teaching it, but said that he never really learned it. He now, because he didn't learn it, he now has to calculate it kind of every single time because he doesn't kind of automatically and instinctively, if you like, not automatically, mm. but instinctively think of it. And, um, but he then, explained a particular move or situation in chess and he kind of articulated the way he acted uh and he said yeah and i had this situation and i just did this and i just thought i'll do this and i'll think about it later okay now in my mind right that was like amazing because i'm thinking how does a chess grandmaster do that? Yeah. And he, he was a bit short on time, he said, because they play this blitz chess, which is you've got very little time to think, right? You Very little time to start with. So, of course, you know, it, they're really responding and they're in the moment. It's I think it's the equivalent of like 2020 cricket of chess. Everything's fast and furious and they have to do things on the fly a little bit nice. more. But he was saying, you know, I'll, I'll just play this move and I'll think, I'll think later. And, you know, to kind of be like that yeah. in the moment, and it, it made me kind of genuinely then realize that it, we tend to think of chess grandmasters as all about, they all about, they analyze all positions and they kind of know, and that, and he's actually clearly got this kind of creative intuitiveness that mm. he's prepared to just trust mm-hmm. and 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 made me then think about, well, what does it take to have that kind of mind? And it, it made me think a little bit about that, it jumped into my head as me said that about yeah. So this is someone who necessarily, you know, doesn't necessarily go, oh, I've got to think through all of these classical yeah. ideas and know every move and think it all through and all that sort of stuff. He's someone who says, I'm going to play this and we're going to see where we go from there and yeah. kind of live in the moment, which is really mm. fascinating and interesting.
0: It sounds like and, would, would he then be really strong at, at reflecting then maybe? Would he he'd make those moves and, and get stuck into what that situation is, but then have a good analytical brain afterwards and be able to store that information for future plays possibly? Would, would you uh, think that happening? A hundred percent. And
3: he, he played, you could see as well, he was playing through what the possibilities were for his opponent, and he could, mm-hmm. And it, you know, it might've happened three months ago, but he could, he could just play it through yeah. and he had the position and he said, I did this. If I'd done this, this would have happened. If I'd done this, this would have happened. He could have played this. He could have played that. I could have been checkmated. In, I played this because I knew I was going to be checkmated in two moves if I didn't. So I did this and I did that and I did the other. And it was just like, Whoa. <laughs> and he could just play it all through. And
1: yeah. then,
3: and um, but it's interesting because they also say that you know um, there's a apparently there's a really famous study in chess. I don't want to make this all about chess, um, but there's a really famous study in chess that if you if you create a situation in chess that is almost like impossible to happen, yeah, like you'd have pieces like very difficult to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, chess players can't make sense of it.
0: Yeah, I think that that study goes, they test grandmasters' memory. They, they yeah. their, their memory goes down to the level of an amateur when they place the pieces in a random order in the board. That's and it's right. such a great study because everyone thinks that that these chess players hold this like, you know, database of memory, but they actually do that. And you're probably massively aware of this chunking and they pattern yeah. recognition. And I yeah. just love that study because for me, it talks so much about sports and environments, we des- the environment we design. And can we get our players, and especially in squash, fast moving variable environments the whole time you know what less thinking is is a good thing in the heat of battle like the less you can think the more you can be you know present in the moment but what have you done building up to that point you can't just obviously wing it and turn up but but what the what is the environment design been like in order to accommodate that type of thinking so it'd be interesting with that that chess player you're talking about if he's had that environment if he's actually practiced things on the fly i'm sure he has but he's actually probably put himself in these really interesting situations
3: he was one of the youngest ever grandmasters and um, he he's known for, and I think part of what makes, gives him such appeal. Uh, I mean, he was very young when he start, you know, when he was like one of these proper prodigies, um, you know, a bit like uh, kind of body uh, Bobby Fisher, and everyone mm-hmm. taps into these ideas, but he um, he's still relatively young now, but he um, I think it's partly because he's so daring he's known for, for example, um, uh, you know kind of really daring queen sacrifices you know and everyone thinks the queen's like the most precious piece you never give it away and he'll, he'll give his queen away and it will be like and people will just go and then all of a sudden the next thing they've lost and it's like well how did that happen so he's he's known for this so he's got a flair he's got kind of a, a creativity and an in, intuition and and I think this is coming across now why did I want to bring this up because for me I believe that um, too much training too many training environments and you know I'm very influenced by ecological psychology as the kind of I guess it's kind of almost like the one of the theoretical underpinnings through which I base a lot of my coaching now it certainly wasn't Where what what I I, not what I was kind of classically trained in with my coach education, like many of us are, but I'm very influenced by uh, the principles of ecological psychology and some of the thinkers and ideas that have been rooted in ecological psychology, which didn't necessarily start out in sport, but has now been appropriated by sport with. Ideas like the constraints led approach and nonlinear pedagogy, and these different ideas um, that a number of different sort of um, researchers and thinkers have taken on board subsequently,
4: mm-hmm. and
3: and the idea, or one of the principles of ecological psychology is is the environment is acting as the means by which to uh, primarily drive behaviour change. You know, because so the idea of constraints led approaches is that you are self organising under the constraints of a given situation and um and so one of the things that i, I uh, have come to learn come to understand and one of my i guess my ideas or principles that i try and share is too many uh learning environments training environments or or uh, practice environments are sterile mm, they you. are they are they are emotionally and psychologically sterile um, it's about mo- pattern. It's about um, movement patterns mm-hmm. um, and the repetition of movement patterns. The belief being that if we repeat the movement pattern over and over again enough times, we will then somehow build it or store it into so-called muscle memory, uh, or we will be able to then execute these actions. And and the, the uh, ecological psychology rejects this notion, mm-hmm. and it says that actually you need the other information present in the environment, i.e., in squash, an opponent, mm-hmm. someone doing something different that you might have to respond to and that's going to be an important di- di- dimension or or equivalent information that makes the activity representative or more representative
4: mm-hmm.
3: and that's really important now this also applies for the psychological and emotional and uh, social dimensions that go alongside that you know which, which is that not only should we be challenged uh, technically if you like or challenged on our perception and our ability to perceive and understand what's happening in the environment from a technical and skill acquisition perspective. But in order to genuinely develop skill, we also need to be challenged psychologically and emotionally because those two things have a real bearing on our skilled performance. So when we talk about the individual who trains well, but then goes into competition and crumbles, it's because they haven't been able to appropriately equate the training environment mm. with a performance environment that has the same level of psychological and emotional demand, and that's part of the challenge, I think, of designing practice environments is to try and
0: create something that has more representativeness. Mm-hmm. So that leads me exactly on to my next question that I wanted to ask you: um, the whole, you know, debate about repetitive practice or you know non-repetitive practice. So my question is, is there a place for repeated practice? So say such as technique, like a musician might practice in slow motion. Uh, You hear some examples from Spartak Tennis Academy, where the juniors are working on their slow motion swing, and they're not even hitting balls for the majority of time, but it's to bed in the high tech or bed in technique. And, you know, you've read Daniel Coyle's book, you know, they refer to that as a bit of deep practice. Where are you at in regard to when is repetition without any constraints appropriate? Would you think?
3: Um, well, personally,
0: uh, I
3: don't. I don't buy into it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm. I guess one of the things I'm known for is the war on drills. Yep. Um, and you know the the ditch those drills hashtag, <laughs> um, which uh, and the reason I created that idea or that notion was um, I. I kind of wanted to create a challenge for coaches. Um, you know, I was someone and have been someone, uh, who found it extremely, uh, extremely disengaging to be involved in, you know, just, just dribbling around a cone or something like that, you know, and, uh, I'd, I'd always, in my own environment, I would always, even as a participant, I'd always try and find a way to make it more fun, right? And create an element of competition or something to just sort of create a little bit more buzz or excitement. And, um, and I, and I, and the challenge is, you know, why, why do we need to do that? You know, why now some people say, well, it's necessary, necessary because you need to embed the technique before you can build upon that. And I'm like, well, show me the evidence first, but if you have got evidence that that's true, then, then, um, then what's to stop us from just tweaking it a bit and making it a bit more fun so mm. that it doesn't feel like you're just doing the necessary thing. What you're doing is something that feels actually quite enjoyable, uh, particularly when we're talking about kids and getting them into involved in sport and all the different distractions and other opportunities they have and Mm. we come along in the world of sport and say no you're going to do this really boring thing for about 30 (laughs) minutes because you need to it's necessary for you Mm -hmm. i don't i don't think we have to do it that way Mm. and i believe that the ecological approach offers us an opportunity to look at that and go actually you know what there's a bit of science behind this too that doesn't mean we Mm -hmm. don't have to do it that way actually what we could do is add uh, add variability Mm -hmm. uh now it turns out that the the ecological um, psycholo- psychologists would argue that actually it's it's a bit of a misunderstanding that doing stuff in isolation, mm-hmm. so as to be undistracted from the other bits, will then transfer to performance.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, the idea is you build it up, don't you? So this is the yeah. linear approach. You mm-hmm. you start isolated, you build it up, you add, you add elements of variability. Mm-hmm. Well, as um, Andrew Wilson has said on my podcast, one of my favorite quotes is, you know, people think that the variability in the environment is noise and it, it's distracting and it gets in the way of technique. It's not noise, it's signal. Nice. You nice. need it in order to define your action. Mm-hmm. So what we're not ever doing, I mean, you know me, squash is fast moving and dynamic. There's decisions being made in the blink of an eye, continuously all the way through. And But then so someone says, well, actually, you know what we'll do is the best way to train is to take all the decisions away and just keep hitting the ball.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: But you're never going to get that. You're Mm -hmm. never ever going to get a situation really where you're just able to execute a shot, not ever really thinking about what your opponent's going to do. I mean, how boring would it be if it was? If that, you no one would play the game. Yeah,
0: it was like squash so, in the eighties. There, a bit. It was just up <laughs> and down the side <laughs> wall and just. Rally. Yeah, I
3: mean, and, and that's how I was taught when I was doing my coaching badge. Mm. You hit it down the sideboard, You try and get it to just brush the brush the wall yeah. a little bit so that it. But it doesn't work anymore.
0: No, the game. It's far it's, more dynamic and creativity. Yeah, the games
3: yeah. moved on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I watched like kind of top level squash quite recently,
0: and I was like, <laughs> "What game's this?
4: The rallies last forever." <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, while well, the Egyptians are just dominating as well, they're just coming with this whole new approach. It's almost you know what what the uh the Brazilians from the favelas did in football. You know, it's it's the Egyptian model in, in squash, and I think six or seven of the top ten men are Egyptian and they've completely bought a new style of game and what it feels like a little bit now uh, in Europe is everyone's going, okay, let's, let's copy that model. It's almost like what they did with the, the small sided football in England and that. And yes, I think it's good to borrow from it, but I think it's also a cultural thing. You know, they've been so used to playing in that culture and, you know, with that, with the limited resources and yeah, the Egyptians have definitely come on and, and, and taken it, you know, to a whole new level, but no, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on this, on this war of drills. Um, But I do fluctuate, you know, I do sometimes, I suppose it depends on, on, maybe the the person I'm with the character that that has been worked on. And you know, what I find quite dangerous is not dangerous, but you read something like the talent code and, and I love it. I'm consumed it, but you get a, a very keen parents to read that book. And what they will do is they will maybe make up this notion in their mind that, Oh, look at what these musicians are doing. Look at what these tennis players are doing. They are just repeating, repeating, repeating to the you know, infinite boredom, my kid, I need to find a coach that does that. And, and maybe the parents perceive that as good coaching where they see their kid just drilling again and again, and then the kids improving. And I think it is such a challenge for coaches to whether it's parent education, whether it's it, it's the coach believes in himself enough. I think that's such a, a little skill that coaches need to develop is is not fall into that trap of possibly the parents wanting that repetition side of things.
3: Yeah, and I guess it, yeah, yeah. Also, it, it's very culturally resilient as well. You know, it's something that we've become accustomed to, as we believe that's important, and therefore we're going to do all those sorts of things. Hey, listen, there's um, you know, there's a big strong piece of work around this idea of repetition without repetition. So mm. I'm not I'm not anti-repetition for a kickoff. and you know, I don't want to say that. What I'm saying is let's find an appropriate level of variability so that. We get because the problem you've got is if all you ever do is play games and this is what sometimes people misunderstand me they think oh i just play games do you no because actually if you just play games like there's too much variability so Mm -hmm. you can never really fully attend to some of the actual moves that you need to be able to develop Um, but so if you then design an environment that has not too much variability but just enough Mm -hmm. then what you then get is the opportunity then for an individual to still be defining an action possibility based on relevant information that's in the environment Mm then the the difference in an ecological perception around skill or the development of skill of any kind is it's an emergent property that's that's the dynamic interplay between the environment and the and the the human being the individual and the task that they're trying to achieve they're trying to accomplish Mm -hmm. and 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 those three things need to be present in order for skill to emerge. Mm. Um, So, you know, whereas the linear approach, if you like, or a more traditional approach, is the idea that skill is something that's taught. You know, you you learn a movement pattern in the form of a technique, and then you layer onto it elements of the game in order to then become a performer. Now, you know, historically, that has produced individuals who can, you know, compete at a very, 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 very high level. And just, you know, just going back to, the the Spartak uh, yeah. example of being a talent hotbed where they do this imitatia,
4: mm-hmm.
3: um and the rehearsal stuff. You know, I, again, I'm not going to question the science behind that. There, there may well be a very very strong basis for that, or the coach may well have a very strong methodological underpinning. But I'm going to I'm going to ask I'm going to ask a question of of how many um, dominant Grand Slam players over the centuries have been Russian? Mm. There have been quite a few Russian pros who've played really well, and in the female game, probably a few more, mm-hmm. but not the really dominant Grand Slam winners.
4: Mm.
3: You know, so I mean, if you look in the men's game historically, mm. they've they've traditionally been American,
0: European, mm. um, you know, and you've got nowadays you've got Merit Safin, but you wouldn't class him as a dominant, um, you know, Grand Slam winner, good player, you know, good pro, but not the you know, not
3: the multi-winner type. You know, the constant dominators of the of this of the of the world sort of scene yeah um but anyway look i'm not but that's not me criticizing that if you can't create the causational
4: link
3: <laughs> yeah, i guess my my point i'm trying to make is that there's there's lots of approaches right and i'm not necessarily saying that approach is the wrong approach for me i feel like um i'm re- I'm, I'm concerned about two things
4: mm-hmm.
3: i'm really concerned about young people's experiences in sport
4: mm-hmm. and
3: i genuinely think that sport's in real real danger of because it's so focused on competence and it's so focused on you know improving individuals capabilities that it loses sight of the human side yeah and so we end up having a trade off between what kids might want versus what we think they might need mm-hmm. i believe that the ecological approach provides us with an opportunity not to have to make that trade off right i believe we can create really rich learning environments full of decisions full of opportunities for action and in so doing, we can also create really immersive and exciting p- possibilities for young people to explore and develop. Mm-hmm. And I genuinely believe that the next, the next generation of super talents are coming from environments that are less structured,
4: mm-hmm. less
3: ordered, less taught. They're all coming from environments where they're forced to adapt to different circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's what for me is where I think the real exciting creativity will come from next.
0: Yeah, and I, I agree. I've I've gone through a bit of a, a, a not not a revolution, an evolution, a bit more of a slower process on that regard. And yeah, I. I now in my small academy with the players that come in and, and get lessons with me. Yeah. You know what? We don't, we don't, I think you see, you summed it up really well. It's not, it's not, it's not if we play games, it's when we play games, you know, we, we're going to be yeah. playing games at some point. And you know what? It's it's a guarantee. We might start with games straight away. Then we might have a little bit of a breakdown and finish with games. You know, I might throw in games at any point, but I think I went some at the start of this process went really big the other way. And I think you summed it up there with, it was just purely games at one point and it was almost too much that and then I think obviously that's the skill as a coach. You start to cut away things that are, you know, you almost have a scale of one to 10 and I was just operating at 10 for variability, you know, variability was just massive and, you know, so much going on. And I think I was almost at the point of trying to blow the guy's brains with the amount of decisions, but then you then realize that that doesn't quite work and you come back down the scale a bit. And like you said, it's, it's that Goldilocks. It's that, that sweet spot. I think coaches are continually trying to find and, you know, and, and you must've had it when, when you, when you find those odd sessions or those odd games that just work, man—they're like gold, aren't they? You hold on to them, and you you then reproduce them in slightly different ways as well. But circling back to where we started this conversation about resilience, um, the other aspect
3: that me for me is that if you make the environment like you know too isolated, or you remove some of those informational variables or environmental aspects, you you make it sterile. Mm. So you you learn technique in an emotionless state. Mm. And then all of a sudden you've got to layer on loads of emotion when you try and perform. It's impossible. I
0: I, go on, sorry. This is so interesting. Just picking just up on that. um, I I told one of the the players I work with, I was having a chat with you and they were just over the moon. They're like, Oh my goodness. And, and there was a question I was going to ask later on, but I want to just bring it in now. She gets debilitated by nerves. Her nerves are just completely overriding. I actually don't work with her one-to-one she lives in America, but we, you know, I, I work with her over zoom, just working on her mind and stuff. And it's only been a couple of weeks, but I, I can tell. And I've been trying to get get under the skin of what what her environment is like, what her, her coach is doing. And I think you said that there was like a lack of emotion in her environment. It was, you know, it was she was drilling well and and working hard and. F- It, but completely couldn't play as soon as competition started so would that reflect what you were saying there possibly 100 percent. I, I mean i went through this experience myself
3: recently where i um i started playing tennis again about a year ago uh I, and i'm self-taught tennis player as always um and I, you know one of these kids who went up to the school courts at like 9am in the morning with a you know mm-hmm. a kind of a, a, a big like bottle of juice and some sandwiches okay. and then like I'm not leaving the courts. I'm not leaving. And you know, it's like winner stays on. So like, you know, I'm I'm trying to desperately try to win just so I have to stay on the courts. And um, you know, I had the Bjomborg book of tennis like on the side of my bed, you know, and I'd like I had a few, I had a few, it was very fortunate enough to I lived abroad for a as a, for a while as a kid and I got a few lessons very early on, like you know, the basics and then you sort of go off and you do your thing. Um so had a little bit of that, but mostly it was like kind of self-taught through my teens. And um uh and always singles
4: mm-hmm.
3: no one played doubles mm-hmm. um and now I've come back you know in sort of later life shall we say and uh, everyone wants to play doubles right because nobody wants to play singles there's too much running about which is like enormously frustrating but but you know so I started playing doubles and I didn't really I didn't like the game um and I had a couple attempts at coming to play coming back to tennis and I'm playing doubles all the time and I don't really like this game and now I really like it oh right? wow! okay but but I'm rubbish at it um <laughs> And uh, well, no, I'm not rubbish at it. I'm just on a really steep learning curve. Okay, and 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 it's partly because uh, the game is very different from singles, right? Singles, I'm the only one I have to consider. There's no one else to think about. Um, and I I would I realised like I would almost be playing tennis a bit like chess. So I'm playing certain shots and then based on the shots that are happening there, I'm then thinking about what I'm going to do next. And, you know, I could either come to the net I can stay where I am and trade, trade baselines, or I can work out my opponent's weaknesses. Whereas when you play doubles, everything happens so much quicker. There's volleys. You've got to be able to return in a certain place where I return naturally is completely the wrong place to return. There was a whole load of stuff. But the big thing was, um, also I'm you know I need to work it out so what you would often happen is there so we start to have some coaching and I start doing all these drills I mean they are properly drills what and what I mean is there yeah there's some dynamics to them there's a bit of variability but we're kind of pre-programming where the ball goes so it's mm-hmm. going to go from you to them and we're going to rehearse the movement so I'm going to go up and then I'm going to come back and then I'm going to go up I'm going to go back. and back. And then I found myself I'd go into a game and none of that would happen okay right the information, like you couldn't just rehearse it, you couldn't just do it, because the minute you just did it something else would happen and you were completely in the wrong place and the mm-hmm. person you are looking, go you're in the wrong place well yeah but yesterday in the in the training drill we did this <laughs> ah yeah but that was this but in this situation you got it well that would have been useful to know wouldn't it we didn't train like that we did a drill which required me to rehearse a movement pattern and now you're saying that given another set of circumstances that goes out the window and we do something completely different yeah. so can you please explain to me and can we do enough drills that take into account all of those possible environmental variables well yeah. of course they can't no.
0: i bet your coach was loving you weren't
3: <laughs> well first, you know, this actually funnily enough wasn't a coach it was a kind of helpful other player who's okay. experienced who's been playing a long time has read all the books and mm-hmm. basically says look here's a drill that we could do hell. now but i did actually have some lessons with a coach okay. a very quite a high high level coach you know um a good performance coach and um she's she's really good and she's got lots of things but but very heavily um by her own admission, like very heavily focused, focused on technique-led, okay. uh, instructionally driven, um, lots and lots of information, uh, lots of correction, lots of those sorts of things. And um, when I I was working on various aspects of my game, and then what I found was exactly what you just described. I would then, you know, okay, admittedly, it's like one lesson, right? So you can't necessarily ingrain all of this stuff, but I'm pretty good at taking things on. But I'd go into the game, and then they'd just go out the window. Right. Be- yeah. Because I've learned them in a really hyper sterile environment. I mean, there was dynamics to it. Don't get me wrong. You know, she's better than just doing things in a very, very, just very isolated space.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: But it still couldn't quite translate. I see and, and I found it quite challenging. So what I've actually ended up doing is I, I hire a coach now who I've got to know quite well, who kind of is interested in what I do. And with my partner, I design the practice. Nice. And he's our hitting partner. But because he's skilled enough, he can actually place the ball in different places to challenge us in different ways. Mm. And then we work through various scenarios and then we work with him and he gives us some observations from him. And it's a really nice, dynamic kind of fluid environment.
4: Yeah. And um,
3: and he's prepared and he's, and he's got enough. He's, he's egoless enough mm-hmm. to want to do that. Mm because he values the conversation and the dynamics, which is right, kind of interesting space to be in.
4: Yeah. Um,
3: I'm not saying it's worked yet, because we only did like one couple of sessions and now we've gone into lockdown. So okay. I've been able to actually put it into practice. But, but it so sounds like
0: you, you look so enthused just explaining it compared to the other way. You, you, you're almost lighting up with your explanation of it. So they're, they're, that's also there. Jesse, that's
3: also probably because I'm such a control freak that I have to be in control <laughs> of the practice session. But anyway, that's by the by. But anyway, circling circling back to your client,
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, you know, I, I'm always someone who you know, I've come to understand now that I absolutely need that environmental variable of somebody being able to do something that's going to make me not be able to perform in order to learn. And and now the difficulty with that sometimes is you don't always get the reps in Mm -hmm. because when you bring variability variability into the space, you're never ever really going to just be able to hit the ball, hit the ball, hit the ball, hit the ball, hit the ball. But actually, if you want a representative learning environment that will challenge you both psychologically, physically, and technically, uh, or, or from a skill perspective, you've got to have the variability there.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, designing it in such a way that there's enough variability is the skill of the coach. Mm-hmm. And for her, I think it sounds to me
0: like she needs more. Yeah. Does sound like I, I've not investigated deeper. Um, it's it's only been two sessions we've had o- online, but the more I'm 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 getting curious. Yeah, it's and again he sounds like a great coach, a very traditional yeah. coach in that sense, and not undermining what he does. But yeah, that I'm I was really curious and going. So how much challenge is being put on? He goes, Oh yeah, I'm being challenged because I'm making he's making me run. I'm going. Well, that's not challenge, is it? You know, that, that's just, that's physical challenge and you, you're you having to run from left to right and hit a ball, but how much is, are those cogs turning? And and yeah, so, but but for me, this leads me on to exactly my next question was, and, and you touched on it about your one tennis coach that, you know, maybe she was highly skilled, but then the second tennis coach where it opens up a bit, um, it's the whole idea about the self-determination theory. And how do you get players to be the ones driving their own learning? Uh, any thoughts on that?
3: Uh, I had a re- I, so I, I have a a thing um, uh, through the podcast and through the, my website, which is a, a thing called the Conclave, which is a community of learning. So it's a group of coaches from all over the world, different sports, um, who come together once a month, and um, we co-create solutions. Let's call it that way. So we'll present our challenges or our problems, and then we will all collectively throw our thoughts and ideas in the mix and then the individual can kind of take what they like from those ideas and 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 it's a kind of almost like a sometimes we describe it as a bit like a coaches anonymous like a self-help group you know (laughs) my name's Stuart and I'm a coach oh hi Stuart um so um we but it's like you know, that, I mean, we have gone into some really, you know, kind of in-depth conversations. You know, sometimes people are talking about mental health challenges. People are talking about we've talked about things like going on, you know, things going on in the world like Black Lives Matter and uh, and its impact on some of the coaches because they've got different ethnic origins and all these sorts of things. So you know, we cover a load of different areas. It's not just always about the the, the doing the the technical side, if you like.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but in that conversation, we had a conversation last night actually about about this thing of how do you how do you foster uh, a space where an individual is is more at the center of their learning experience particularly if they're either coming with a preconceived notion of what they should expect which is to be taught stuff yeah and to run about a lot right So <laughs> like part part fitness trainer part yep. coach yeah and then the other one is um how do they what, what do you do as well when there's like that implicit contract mm. you know that you don't always know what that is and you've got to unpick it and then and then the third dimension is Sometimes, and particularly in squash, you know, it's a there's a contractual relationship here because there's a transaction. I'm paying you to do something, and you got to do what I want you to do because I'm the client, right? Mm-hmm. So there's dynamics there that are at play, you know. So the, what they call the coach's form of life is really, really important because that those things really influence. And I, when I was talking to the previous coach, I was talking about who's sort of more instructional.
4: Mm-hmm. When we
3: talked about it afterwards, and I, you know, I, I asked that question about like the level of interaction I had. Mm -hmm. how much information was I providing versus the information she was giving Mm -hmm. and she thought about it long and hard and said 80% me and I said felt more like 90 wow okay and um and was she uh,
0: aware of your background by the way before the lesson yeah okay
3: (laughs) (laughs) He'd actually when she was doing her when she was doing a higher level coaching degree, she came to she came to observe me Oh, okay. Cool. And what she probably saw me doing was not very much instruction at all. Mm. And I, I'd I'd love to know actually. We, we keep meaning to talk about it and, and explore yeah, it'd be interesting
0: and, to know her journey. Why why she's obviously aware of you and maybe looked at you, but but decided to go a slightly different route with it.
3: Well, some of it is she said this directly, and this is why I brought it up. Is uh you know it's a transaction. Mm. You know I'm I'm handing over cash, right? And she feels like she's got to add a lot of value into the space, mm. and she get and the value she provides is information. And she also feels very, very importantly that she needs to feel for I need to feel uh, that I'm getting a, a benefit, literally a physical technical benefit out of the session. I improve in the session.
4: Mm.
3: Now if I'm honest, one of the things we know about the ecological space, and actually one of the things we know about motor learning is if you actually get an outcome, like a direct outcome in the session in say an hour, it's fool's gold. Mm. It's fragile brittle it's not going to last now yeah I could keep coming and keep coming and maybe it would continue to improve but generally speaking what you see is you see the improvement over a period of time but it's very hard to get somebody to come along and pay a sessional fee and not get that outcome so there's a lot of selling to be done for a coach who embraces this kind of a concept right Mm -hmm. so it's it's not an easy an easy thing to do straight away yeah but but the benefits long term are important. Now, now the you asked the question you asked me was uh, about, you know, how do you get somebody to be more uh, you know, self self-determined? Well, mm-hmm. it starts right at the beginning, because and again, one of the things that I'm attracted to by the ecological approach is, um, you know, everyone talks about athlete or player centeredness. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 so. When you're sort of more instructional and, and you are the, the one with the knowledge and you're going to provide the knowledge, you're going to design the activity, provide the knowledge for the individual and provide the information that they're going to need to be able to improve, obviously you are at the center of the learning experience then. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be, you can't not be. Now you might ask a load of questions, et cetera, et cetera, but still, you know, you are the knowledge giver.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: When you, In an ecological approach, when you're saying, actually, there is, there is an environment here that is going to ask us some questions, it's going to ask of us certain things. There's various things that we can do here. Some of those things are going to be less effective, some will be more effective. You as an individual, based on your own proclivities and the way you see the world and the way you move and the way you act and the way you can end inde- all that sort of stuff, you will begin to find things that, that feel right to you. And so my job, I see as a coach, is to un- uncover that. Hmm. So there's a brilliant uh, it was a brilliant podcast I listened to a while back called Teacher Stories, and it has a golf coach on it called Fred Shoemaker.
0: Okay.
3: Uh, he wrote a book called Extraordinary Golf, and he's very influenced also by a very famous uh, guy in the world of tennis as well called Tim Galway, The Inner Game.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. You've yeah, heard Tim of, that. right? He's, he's like kind of the forefather of this stuff, isn't he? Yeah, yeah <laughs> of
3: course. And, and, um, and so Shoemaker said, he was asked by this guy, so it's about teaching actually, and he said, you know, what's the difference between teaching and coaching? And shoemaker said, "For me, teaching is about putting information in. Mm-hmm. Coaching is about pulling out from pulling out from something they have within them they just don't know yet." Wow,
0: that's such a great way to put it, eh? How cool is that? And
3: So for me, I was like, wow, I'm hooked onto this. So yeah. what we're saying is I'm working with an individual and I want to find out, I'm going to spend all my time. So you will, I hope if you were to come and see, you're not seeing it tonight because I'm yamping at you, yabba, yabba, yabba at you, but that's part of the contract tonight, right? Um, I love it. Honestly,
0: this is just, for me, this is just <laughs> like my medicine, keep
3: going. <laughs> um, but when you, um, when you work in this way, if you were to come and watch me coach, what I'd hope you would see is, if, if, if the information transfer is all athlete to me, not mm. me to athlete,
4: mm-hmm.
3: you know, in, it might be in the form of questions. It might be in the form of solicitations. It might be in the form of the wink and the nod and the, and the, and this, that, and the other, but generally speaking, information flows from athletes to me. Why is that? Because I want to know what they know, mm. or I want to know what they're experiencing. I want to know what they're perceiving. I want to know what they are attuning to, because if I know that I can then tweak that environment to meet their needs more effectively and then we can really dial it in
4: yeah
3: so very often i start from something fairly big like a game or a, a small-sided game of some kind and then what we'll then do is we'll squeeze now anyway why am i coming on to that i was just about to go in a rabbit hole i'll bring myself back out <laughs> so from the outset pl- and some players don't aren't used to this i've worked in academies before right where the players are like you know Whoa, he's asking us questions. Uh, Oh, better say something that he sounds good to him. You know, and I see through all that straight away. Mm -hmm. My kids now know that there's dialogue going to be had. And actually from the outset, they should be they should know that I'm likely to come and ask them something. Yeah. <laughs> they need to be thinking, they need to be aware of things mm. in when they're playing so mm. that if I come to them and say, What did you experience? or what did you notice? Or what did you see something that happened over there and this, that, and the other, yeah. they they've got something there.
0: But I like that because you you referred to this on a previous podcast, listen to you don't want those stock answers, you know. You don't want those kids just going. Oh, I'm just going to regurgitate something I've heard. And I think that's such a skill as a coach to to not necessarily give them those answers they're going to regurgitate. And and the way you ask that question, what do you notice? You know, leave it nice and broad, and you know, let them speak. And yeah, it sounds like you really get that right in most of your coaching stuff. And yeah, it's something that I try to borrow and learn.
3: <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say I've got it right. I wouldn't. <laughs> uh, it's like anything. We're all I'm continuously working on it. But um, yeah, I like to think that it's it's if I've got a strength in coaching, it's that it's the kind of the questioning side. Um, But trying not, it's not always having, I mean, I try not to have what, you know, convergent questions because a lot of coaches do that where they're saying, you know, I know what the right answer is. And I'm going to give you a series of questions that basically Mm -hmm. lead you to the right answer. And then we'll all be happy because we got there. Mm -hmm. I try and keep it more divergent than that. So there's a range of possible answers. Mm -hmm. And when the answers emerge, we'll follow them. Mm -hmm. So if somebody says to me something that I didn't necessarily think of, I'll go, wow, nice, really interesting. Let's explore that in more detail. Tell me more about it, Mm. you know, or if I get a stock answer, which is a defense mechanism for not wanting to get it wrong, I'll say, I'll say, yeah, okay, it is that. But what about that? Tell me more, you know, give me more information. Mm. Um, you know, and and so there's constantly an invitation Mm. and now,
0: so okay, No, you go. No,
3: well, and and then sometimes if you get a rejection of that, because sometimes people can feel really uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? Then I use a term that I got from um, I use a, a technique I got from Doug Limov, who was recently back recently on the show. Uh, Teach like a champion. There you go. <laughs> There's the book. <laughs> good
4: classic. book. It's really, really, good
0: book. <laughs> eh? Like about a quarter of the way through it, and yeah, some nice stuff in there. So yes. Um.
3: And and uh, it, but his one of his previous books, Teach Like a Champion. He's got this technique he calls No Opt Out. So mm-hmm. what I'll say is, hold on to it. Have a little think right? I'm going to go to somebody else and I'll come back to you in a minute. So I'll go over there. They'll say something. Then we come back because they're not getting away with it. I'm just going to give you a bit more
0: time to think of it. Mm. Love it. No. And for me, the more you're speaking there and, and, and the way you massage and encourage that, that, that questioning and that, that self-determination of the athletes, again, I don't know what studies have been done on this, but for me, is that pointing back to resilience, to mental toughness, to for for the ability, obviously for the athletes to think on their feet under pressure. I, I'm I'm not sure if there is. I would hope there is a bit of a a resilient link in there. What's your thoughts on that? Do you think that encourages a resilience type mindset when when you when you take them on that journey? That's exactly why I do it. You've absolutely hit the nail
3: on the head, um, because what I've discovered in my kind of career working with young people, adolescents, children, is they're increasingly afraid to fail Hmm. Um, and they're increasingly afraid afraid of saying something that will make them look stupid and uh, what they come to learn in my environment very quickly is that the only way you can look stupid is to say nothing and look at your shoes (laughs) because that means that basically you haven't considered that we're here to experience a kind of learning experience and the and, the, and if you don't, if you're not prepared to volunteer information to oh, your other teammates, then you're not being part of a team. You're not being, you, you're actually violating one of our kind of core principles around teamship. Um, and actually, you've, you've made me think, because essentially a, a big part of our conversation was about this. One of the coaches last night, as he was presenting this, you know, how do we develop what he described as the soft skills, which is this mm. psychological, emotional, all that sort of stuff. And I said, well, firstly, I think we need to reframe it. These aren't the soft skills. Yeah. These are the hard skills if they were the soft skills everybody would be doing them but they don't mm-hmm. this is what this is not what we as coaches are traditionally trained in you know this is what we have to learn we learn that this is important and it's actually the difference in terms of somebody's performance but we're never given that information in our coach education or very few of us are and some of us follow this path ourselves and we follow this this to study it and we want to learn more and we you know want to maybe even go and do degrees in it or masters or whatever whatever it is right um some of us just set up podcasts and get other people to come and talk to us about it
0: <laughs> <laughs> i think we're similar in that sense just quizzing curious people on on a similar level so yeah
3: but uh, but, it, but it's designed into the environment this idea of um and there's a whole range of approaches and methods that i would adopt but one of them is to um, pull from the group, what they believe the environment should look and feel like, and uh, and what how the interactions should be between the group, and it's it's very. I design it was very much like creating a tribe, if you like, and and how would a tribe act and you know and tribes have to have really clear ideas about um behavioral norms because otherwise they they nobody survives so they're really clear about that Mm. and my role then becomes being the guardian of those ideals that they've established for themselves ironically enough my group that i'm working with at the moment right from the outset they didn't use these words but we kind of centered on them um, they 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 described to me, you know, that they wanted to have an environment where there was lots of opportunities to learn and have a go at things. Um, that that you know they were respectful to each other and they were respectful to me mm-hmm. or to the coaching team. Um, that uh, they they trained with intensity and focus and purpose, and they had a real sense of teamship. And it just so happens that I managed to be able to shoehorn that into the acronym Grit because it's a growth mindset respect intensity and teamship Mm -hmm. and the growth mindset i had to kind of talk to them a little bit about what a growth mindset was and a growth mindset is the ability to have a go at things get a setback and see that as an opportunity to get better and learn right as opposed to oh i've not done very well therefore i'm not going to do that again Mm -hmm. because that might make me look stupid
0: Mm. um Oh, yeah, and the, the growth mindset, Carol Dweck stuff, as you mentioned earlier, it's just that, that's at the forefront of if I do an education piece, uh, that's the one thing I try to get in super early. And just hearing you say that just gives me such confidence that it's its such a powerful thing. And, you know, failure is a feedback and, and you know, you add the word yet onto a sentence. I can't do it. I can't do it yet. And so, yeah, that growth mindset is, is huge. Can you just run through that acronym again? So growth mindset, respect, intensity and teamship. Love it. And what
3: I do is I design into the environment opportunities, invitations for the young people to display those things. Sometimes I'll have a theme and I'll really double down on it. So we might, for example, have an intensity theme, right? Where we're going to train with super intensity and I'll be, you know, and, and then I'll be giving like, like kind of points or I'll be giving, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, affirmations all about intensity, you know, i pull the group in and go, guys, 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 got to stop, got to stop, got to stop. Why, 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 why? uh Do you see what Rory did there? Do you see that level of intensity? Lost the ball, tracked back, put pressure on, gave it away. Now they wouldn't have seen it. I did. Mm. Right. So he needs to know that I value that they all need to know that that is really a valuable thing. And then we then start to get them to actually start calling out intensity points for each other, for their opponents, mm. Right, So they're now beginning to build a culture where they begin to really value these things. Mm. And this is this idea of self-determination and self-directed. Firstly, they created this idea. Um, And the way I do it, by the way, is because kids very rarely get to this. 14-year-old boys don't get to get here. So I just get them to say, what would be rubbish? What would be a rubbish environment? And they describe it. Show me. Tell me what it would look like. Oh, we'd all be messing about. Okay. So what would be the opposite of that? Oh, yeah, it would be really listening yeah. We'd be, re- be really zoned in. Oh, okay. What does that sound like? like being respectful? Yeah. Respectful. Okay, great. So you know that's how I kind of get them to arrive at those things. Mm. Now, I'm not shooing them all into this acronym grit. I've used different acronyms in the past. Sometimes we don't even have an acronym because <laughs> I can't make one up, but I do genuinely go with what they say.
4: Mm.
0: No. And, and it resonates so much. I, you know, the modern world we live in, you know, if, if there's this this, this space where these players can find the identity where the, the morals, the ethics, the culture that you're building is aligned with what they want. That's, that's so powerful. And yeah, I think you mentioned it. you know, the mental health thing and the amount of unlimited distractions in the world now, how kids are being pulled all over left, right, and center. Yeah. It can be a real great little space for them. And yeah, something that I'm trying to do. And it sounds like, like you're, you're cultivating it really well. One
3: Um, of the, just one of the things I wanted to add as well, one of the, one of the coaches last night, um, gave a, showed uh, us, showed a, a kind of like this program that they developed, like a season long program. And, you know, they kind of tapered it it's all periodized and they map in various things in and at the start of it, it says, they talk about, he uh, had like this sort of like psychological themes for each week. Uh, you know, one was like, ha- you know, it's so, like when they're returning from the starting like new season, it's like, we're going to create happy hockey players. He's a hockey coach. And, uh, and then they've been moving on to the next thing. And then and all those sorts of things and building up to the kind of really challenging space, but I flipped it for him and said, well, what if, and, and he said, and when we're coming back, we're just doing the basics, we're doing some fitness and some basics and this, that, and the other. And I said, what if instead of doing the so-called basics, yeah, you did the basics, but the primary goal was to establish this kind of behavioral code that's gonna be the bedrock of your interactions as a group for the rest of the season. So instead of doing it later on, when you're beginning your competitive season or even mm-hmm. close to your competitive season, what if you actually just trained it so instead of actually you're training you as a coach you're not trying to develop their technical competence or their physical competence or their t- tactical competence for the first few weeks at all really mm-hmm. you will because you're doing activities that they're going to benefit from and it's going to be the byproduct but your focus as a coach is the emotional psychological, um, social dynamics that are going to be then the, that, that are going to forge the way that the organization interaction and then give it a name, give it an identity. Lovely. Um, and, uh, and, and then hold that and keep it and, and, it, and, uh, and nurture it. And, and, and also sometimes as a coach be really relentless about it mm-hmm. because yeah. they might want to pull, they might say they want that. And then like, the going gets tough and they start pulling away from it you know cuz human beings like to get back to stasis no 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 i'm the guardian i'm you, you entrusted me with helping you to stay there my if i was to let you off i would be doing you a disservice mm. i must bring you back to the fold
0: mm. Yeah, No, that it totally gets me to reflect on on, on things I do. And I, I'm, that's probably one of my weakest points is, is, you know, we set the stall out nice and early and we go with the intentions and we have this contract, so to speak, between the players. And yeah, when the going gets tough, it's something that I'm not the guardian so well. And, and just the way you say that, I think is really good. I'm going to go back and reflect well, on that. So.
3: I, should say, I should say, firstly, they're the guardian actually okay. they should be the guardians but sometimes they don't get that right because they are 14 year old boys yeah right. and so i i have to step in when they haven't already stepped in yes. and that's the bit that i'm still developing is getting their preparedness to call mm-hmm. and sometimes that has to be quite tough by the way consequence wise sometimes i do have to be very tough and to say you guys agree that you were going to be the guardians of this behavioral code and now too many of you have decided that you want to buy you want to bypass that mm-hmm. and now we agreed previous to this that that i should act when that happens mm-hmm. we've already said that we know they'd already they already know that and we already know that that means that we're going to have to do something different from what we would otherwise do yeah as a mean and you know it might even be a pre-design you know what i would say to them what do you think you guys should be doing as a bit of a reminder to this mm-hmm strangely they come up with the most horrific things (laughs) i have to kind of temper it down all right guys yeah we'll be doing that all night so yeah okay we'll do something like that but
0: not (laughs) i think we just want to see their mate suffering a little bit don't there
3: they? is a bit of that yeah you're right
0: (laughs) um so knowing that i was coming on with you there's just a a couple of questions i've got here from some other coaches that were again super jealous of me um we don't have to go into huge detail with them because they're quite broad and ranged um but i think these are quite interesting ones so first question is um, what's your thoughts on the 10,000 hour rule? You know, it's banded about all over the place. Where do you sit with the 10,000 hour rule at the moment? Well, it's not a rule. Uh, it was called a rule by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm -hmm. Um, in, in a kind environment as well, by the way, that's that's where I'm always quite interested in, because, you know, in a wicked environment, you know, you've got David Epstein talking about, you know, kind and wicked environments. And I think Malcolm tended to have those lenses of a kind environment. i so, sorry to jump in, but I think. No, no,
3: no, you're right. But then having said that, that's one of the things that um, probably was missed by Anders Erickson's work, which was, you know, he when the 10,000 hour rule was first created or the, the notion of the 10,000 hour rule was sort of first became popular. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but also, you know, the idea of 10,000 hours of e- to, to achieve expertise uh, and that being an, an, an average um, and, uh, you know, the recognition that there was this, and there's a lot of debate about that. But one of the things that was lost, I think, when that debate sort of emerged in some of the science was, um that uh e- ericsson had put around deliberate practice and his idea about deliberate practice was it was really effortful mm-hmm. um and you know you were you were having to pay a lot of attention to it and you had to have somebody else there i.e. a coach or a teacher who was helping you with your deliberate practice now he painted for me too dark a picture of what practice should be it was very it was it, grim he, wasn't it yeah not not inherently enjoyable
4: mm-hmm. but he
3: he'd done most of his research in areas like music mm-hmm. where you know like a lot of these mat you know violin players for example are spending hours and hours and hours scraping away at a violin um, and it's not necessarily enjoyable but they do so for whatever variety of reasons they do mm-hmm. um, and i thought that was never for me quite the right uh uh notion of what practice could or should be mm-hmm. um however what i did what it did bring out was the idea that practice quality mm-hmm. really matters so what he was saying was what Erickson was trying to argue i, I believe anyway was that you need uh Practice quality matters and it takes a long time. I reckon if he'd stopped with that, no one would have argued with it, but it's not as pithy as the 10,000 hour rule, which is kind of what made him famous. Yeah. Um, There's a, by the way, there's a really brilliant podcast just come out actually
0: called prodigy. Okay. I'm going to write that down right now.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Highly recommend (laughs) it. And actually one of the, one of the early ones is all about um, expertise and, there's an, this might be the second, second episode perhaps. And they actually really delve into, and there's an actually interview with Anders Eriksson just before he died.
0: Mm, he passed away recently. Yeah.
3: yeah and, uh, and also um, there's interviews with some of the uh, researchers who, you know, kind of like challenged and critiqued his work and came mm. up with alternative findings. Mm. Um, but the, the reverence within which they hold him, mm. even though they don't necessarily agree with his findings is really interesting. And the, contribution he made to the field of expertise is still really well regarded yeah. you know, it's like any any scientific theory you know you put up there an idea and then others come along and try and falsify it and then science moves on as a result
4: yeah, yeah. Um,
3: but there's a lot in there that i think is still really important like practice quality matters and um and it takes time
4: mm-hmm.
3: now yeah. how long it is We don't know. And that depends on individual proclivities. And David Epstein's book, The Sports Gene, definitely alludes to that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it still takes time. Mm -hmm. You know, very few individuals, and we are talking very few, you know, genuinely become highly skilled squash players straight out of, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, an area where they've never seen squash before. It doesn't kind of happen like that. Now, there might be some people with athletic capabilities mm-hmm. and previous dispositions that might make them more able to adapt to a game like squash than others, mm-hmm. right? For sure. But that's part of a mix. And so what the other research has shown is um, deliberate practice does matter, but nowhere near as much as Ericsson suggested. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not. It's not as big a variable uh it's it's a big variable but it's not as big a variable as he suggested he mm. he kind of wanted to say, and this is where he went probably a little too far was that it's kind of the only thing that mattered mm. your ability to practice over a period of time determines your ability to then become so so it actually launched a lot of books like the talent code and mm. and uh, and outliers yep. you know which kind of gave that very hopeful idea to people out there that actually talent's overrated and that's a jeff colvin book mm-hmm you know, actually this idea that it's all about your physical gifts. No, 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 no. It's all about how hard you work. Right. That's a really attractive proposition. And to a certain extent, Dweck's work sort of, sort of articulates that. Mm. Well, yes, but was also going to be things like genetics. There's going to be things like uh, environmental factors as you're growing up. There's going to be all sorts of dimensions that are going to add to this as well. So, you know, it's a key variable, but it's not the, not, not the only variable and probably not the main variable. Um, but I do know, no word of a lie. I have ex- I have come across parents who are counting the hours down on the fridge, you yeah. know, like nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine, <laughs> and here's my gold medal. Like <laughs> that does not work, right? I'm going to tell everybody in the room now, right? Don't be thinking that's going to be be happening. But it, I would definitely want to always put the message that how hard you work and the effort you put in and the intensity matters. Right. Um, And the focus that you place there and the level of uh, investment you place Mm -hmm. or bring of yourself and your willingness to to be part of your own learning journey matters. That's huge. Mm -hmm. And the time you put into it matters, too.
0: No, you, you you speak a lot of sense in regard to that and yeah, put, put it across in such a such a way we can digest it really well. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I am conscious of time and, and you've yeah. given me so much time, but I've probably got a couple more quick questions if that's sure. all right. And hopefully, I'll try
3: can... I'll try not to take such, no, be so honestly, long winded. I,
0: I feel bad for you, man, because you have just, <laughs> just given me so much, here and I'm just I'm I'm lighting up on this side. So, um, any ideas to assist rates of improvement when players seem to plateau or they reach that perceived ceiling? You know, you, you get those players. Days ago, I'm just never going to get better than this. What? Where do, Where are you at with that?
3: Uh, it's a really hard question to answer because I'd need so much more information. But just, just to throw a few I- ideas or thought fragments at that, change it up. Okay. So, first question you've got to ask yourself is: What have we been doing so far, and what alternatives are there? Because you know we may have reached a, p- a point of plateau or sterility because the method has been the same or um, you know, there's not enough variety, so um, that might be one thing. So change it up. Now, changing it up might also be do something else. Mm-hmm. So, for example, like you know, um, do a, a related but separate, different sport for a period of time to see what can you can draw from that. Or it might be do the same sport but in a different way. You know, so for example, I mean, and, and in the simplest sense, it could be um, you know, in it, changing the implement. You know so instead of playing squash with a squash racket play squash with a tennis racket and a tennis ball nice. or it could be play play squash with a uh, a tennis racket and a beach ball or play play squash with a range of different balls with different variabilities in them you know yeah. or play in a different environment playing a giant core if you can find one Mm-hmm. Uh, play peloto rebound games that are similar but different nice.
4: um
3: and, and and explore what it what the mm-hmm. difference is
0: To really freshen it up for them as well
3: a, a little maybe you know just as a means by which maybe just to sort of make a little bit of a breakthrough mm-hmm. um or shift gears you know it's difficult like so like, i can't imagine what the plateau might be but let's say you know someone's reached a particular level of performance and they kind of kind of can't break through
4: mm-hmm. so
3: I, I would say right okay so shift gears a little bit right so it might be that what we might do is we might go back a stage to go forward a stage which is a hard decision for people to make right but it might be we say like, let's let's go let's design design backwards and then the third thing that just occurs to me actually is look at the game dispassionately you know maybe using data but also look at the game through the problems it presents. So, for example, I tend to look at games like this now anyway, which is, you know, what are the what are the problems that the game is asking me to solve? What are the puzzles that I'm looking to discover and explore uh, or discover the solutions to? And so I would I'm very often presenting players with puzzles. Mm. Um, I have a term that I use, which is cones, uh, cones, not cones. Um, So it's like limiting the use of cones as a means by which to direct where people move to. I use cones to just mark out space Mm -hmm. uh, and create boundaries. Um, So I would create a, a Koan is a Korean word, which is a puzzle. Okay. Uh, K O A N. Um, And uh, so I create using puzzles. So I create a puzzle. Here's a puzzle to solve. Mm. So um, there's a, there's a concept in um, skill acquisition that uh, is gaining a bit of popularity. Uh, which is differential learning, which is the idea that we might do something really extreme that's kind of way beyond what would be a reality Mm -hmm. in order then to discover something about what our our reality currently is. Okay. So it's a stretching mechanism, right? But you're stretching into the absurd sometimes. Mm -hmm. The best example I can think of is a regular guest of the podcast, a guy called Kendall McQuaid, Mm -hmm. who... Uh, for those of you who aren't golfers, the shank is when you hit the ball off a particular part of the golf club and it goes directly almost 45 degrees. Right. It's the most horrible thing that a golfer can experience because it's so Oh Jesus. And the <laughs> ball nearly always disappears somewhere. You never find it again. And all of a sudden you're then a load of shots down. And it comes actually off the, the, the intersection between where the club shaft and the club head is.
0: Right, it's the hosel. Yeah. I, I've been there a couple of times though. <laughs> yeah. yeah
3: the, the horrible old J Arthur rank as they call it. So, um, you know, in order to not shank, uh, Kendall had a group of players deliberately shank. Okay, because if you can deliberately shank, you can deliberately not shank.
0: Like that. That's now a
3: this, great way to think. This causes some consternations in the world of golf, who uh, who think that this is sacrilege, right? And he actually did. He actually did get uh, disciplined
4: no. for it. What? Yeah,
3: yeah. Really sadly, right? Really sadly, by people who really don't understand skill acquisition. He was basically using differential learning. He's saying, "Look, if you can deliberately shank, you can deliberately not shank. Yeah. It's all about understanding where you're presenting the club head towards the ball. Mm. So actually, le- And the kids were having a whale of a time. Look how look, I nearly hit it directly right. Look at really? look at that. I've really got it to curve around around the side of the um, the uh, what's it called the driving range. Yeah. Um, and that's differential learning.
0: Love it. You're on, doing on, something on, absurd yeah, in order smaller, to then find something else. Yeah, complete on, on a smaller level, if I can relate it to squash. Probably once a month, with, you know, before COVID and stuff, we would have um, you know, trick shot 10 minutes. Yeah. Trick yeah, shot. yeah, yeah, and I would show, you know, maybe some pros doing some trick shots and they'd even get like their racket, they'd hit a ball and they'd try hit the, the racket butt. So the racket butt would hit the ball onto the front wall and almost yeah. like absurdly go to this point. And honestly, the amount of fun that they had and what was even more encouraging turn up next week. And a few kids were there early. Guess what they were practicing. They were practicing their weird trick, shot. trick shots that they were never playing a match, but they were learning and, and stretching their skills. And that I think is one of the most inspiring things as a coach. If you can turn up next week and they are you know, experimenting with stuff like that in a really fun, engaging way. You know, you've got the buy-in of those kids for quite a long time off the, off the back of that. So def- yeah, I love definitely
4: that.
3: A, a lot of that. There's a lot of value in that. So I would I would recommend something like that. And I also like play with a tiny racket with a tiny head. Yeah. Or a long, a long racket, super long racket, but with a tiny head. Mm. And just
0: discover like what that's like
3: to play play in a confined in space. It'd be just really interesting just to
0: see. Mm. No, brilliant, really, really good advice. So, um, listen, there's probably a whole other podcast I want to talk to you about around visualization, mindfulness, um, how we can work on the mind outside of things. I had a bunch of questions on that. Definitely not going to go down that rabbit hole just yet, but hopefully, there's opportunity to have another discussion on that and what you believe on that. But in closing, I was thinking, do you have any final thoughts or comments that you could possibly give listeners how to keep motivated and? goal orientated during this pandemic with no events in the calendar there's not like a lot of the juniors I'm working with you know there's no tournament in the calendar any advice on that at the moment
3: um well there's, there's lots of ingenuity out there I'd have to say I mean seeing a lot of coaches sort of coming up with ideas and challenges and thoughts and all those sorts of things um yeah well what I would say is um in your world uh, one of the benefits is is quite a lot of people have walls <laughs> If they're fortunate enough to have walls. Um, And that opens up a load of opportunities. Right. So for me, I would be designing and providing games and putting them out there to players. I mean, we funnily enough, I play hockey squash with my son quite a lot. We play with a tennis ball and hockey sticks and the ball's allowed to bounce once uh, and we create a court and we've got the side of the wall we get told off because we make too much noise but um but we're playing all the time and it's a really skillful game actually it's quite weird you know and you have to play on both sides and you're you're actually developing quite a lot of kind of ability to play so you play the ball in mid-air which is actually becoming an increasingly important skill in hockey because the game the ball does raise quite a bit and you do have to be able to manipulate it in the in the air so um, we play games like that so I would just say tap into your creativity mm-hmm. be playful mm. um. Don't be afraid to do stuff that's a bit bonkers. Uh, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And people will tell you and you can do something else um, and share it with others. And then help, because I'm a big believer in coaching. We need to really tap into the principle of reciprocity. This podcast has been hugely valuable to me, not because, you know, I like to think I'm putting information out that is valuable to others. And I hope that's the case, but it comes back because people share ideas Uh, or they share thoughts, or um, they ask me questions on things which make me think about different things. Some people ask me to go and speak at conferences and things like that, which is, you know, nice, and I get to travel and those sorts of things. But it's genuinely, you know, so if you have an idea... Put it out there in the world. Let somebody else use that as an idea and build off it. And if we all did that, we'd all be having loads of different ideas that we could use to share other people share with other people. Mm. And don't be afraid to encourage your players to try different sports and different activities. We don't always have to be a slave to our activity. Yeah. Um, and this is if this is ever a time to do that, it's now.
0: Mm-hmm. Listen, Stuart. That, that advice, you know, I, I could just sit here and and that's ear candy for me. Hearing the stuff you talk about, I think we're on very similar pages there. And honestly, thank you so much for your time, the effort you make in your podcast, your blogs. As I said, I genuinely signpost people to them. I, I've got a bunch of really keen parents, and a lot of times I'm linking to the podcast you're doing. So thank you for putting all the stuff out there. And um, for those who don't know, could you just give a shout out of where people can find you? Where are you? Your most active, and where can people have a look at what you're doing?
3: Yeah, so uh, the talentequation.co.uk is a website. Uh, check that out. Um, uh, it's usually where I'm posting, you know, kind of like new ideas, podcasts. I put games on there from time to time. Um, I've got a YouTube channel. If you search for the talent equation on YouTube, you'll see I've got a new a new project I've started called called Coaching Hacks. Um, which is like three-minute masterclasses of just different thoughts and ideas, some of which I've talked about today. Um, and I'm putting them on as regularly as I can, albeit it's quite quite difficult to do so these days. Uh, and also, you can find me on Twitter, at Stu underscore Arm. Um, and I'm pretty active engaging and discussing with people some of the merits of this approach Um, and you'll see me from time to time in various places I'm involved with a a group over in the states called Emergence um, who are working in a range of different different uh, sports and I've got a new uh, course that I'm working on with them um, uh, which is which I'm loosely titling is a bit of a uh, I think it's called Dangerous Coach Development Okay. It's me. It's me one on one with coaches in sports that I don't know about, uh, having to coaches use my skills as a coach developer to help them learn and discover more about the ecological approach. So I'm putting myself out there and making myself extremely vulnerable, um, and we'll see how it goes. So I'm recording <laughs> well, that at the moment with those
0: guys. Yeah, well, I'd I'd love to see that at some point when it when it does come up. But I um, hope you find it useful. I know I've been the curious one asking questions and. Uh, you know hopefully a lot of the players i work with and the listeners are going to be scribbling notes from this i am going to be listening back to this and taking a lot of notes so appreciate your time thank you very much Stuart. and yeah we'll hopefully touch base at at a point in the future my pleasure great to speak to you cheers man presence process persistence the essence of squash mind